Dotnet Rocks episode 628 with guest Phil Japisky, recorded live at Code Mash in Sandusky, Ohio, Thursday, January 13th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're in Sandusky, Ohio in the middle of a snowstorm. Don't you wish you were us? You know, we still don't have winter in Vancouver, so it was kind of a shock to my system to leave my happy home and uh, hang around the Chicago airport for 10 hours to get here. Uh, that's terrible. I know. I'm here now, and you know, my, we're going to have some fun. It's a great place. Did you at least have access to the lounge? Yes, I did have I was online the whole time, so I, at least I could express my frustration. <laughs> well, well, we're here. We're here at Code Mash. Love Code Mash. We were here two years ago, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's where we uh, had a panel discussion, which we're recording tonight. So probably next Thursday's show will be the panel discussion that we have with the guys from the Java Posse. Yes, and goodness knows what's going to happen there. I do know there's a couple of bottles of Maker's Mark floating around, so this could be a little unruly. God bless Bill Wagner and his uncle. (laughs) Well, we're here with uh, Phil Japixi. And uh, he's uh, speaking of Code Mash. Phil, hi. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Yeah, having a good time. Last time you were on, which was oh, more than a year ago, maybe two, we were yeah. talking about the charity you work with, Hope Mongers. That, that's correct. Yeah, we we did a whole show on uh, really programming for charity mm-hmm. and you know how Hope Mongers came about and, and how people could help out with give camps and whatnot. And have you, have you noticed in the past while wow, those things have really exploded? I, I saw a, a tweet the other day because they're they're putting on a give camp ahead of the MVP summit, and they're like full, full, full. So many people coming in, and so many participants involved now. It's like, okay, please stop emailing me. We get emails from people all the time asking, you know, how do I get into a project? Because you know, I can't sit around and make make up my own projects. I want to get involved in something. And we always recommend go to a give camp. You know, you'll learn a lot and you'll be able to get your hands dirty on a real world project and you'll be helping the world in the process. Yeah. And they're going on over the place. As a matter of fact, Microsoft is running the national give camp week this weekend, uh, January 15th, 16th and 17th or something like that. So uh, this show will probably already air uh, by the time that has happened. But uh, you can just contact Microsoft, uh, givecamp.org. Very good. Well, we're here to talk about uh, behavior-driven development, are we not? Uh, I believe we are. Oh, uh, and you know, it's come up. It's come up in the show a couple of times. BDD people bring it up every once in a while, but um, for the most part, we had. I don't think we've ever done a show focused on what BDD is and 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 why you should use it. Well, I also feel like we're at a time now where the hype sort of died down and people are just getting to work. Which is a good time to talk about something. So, uh, fill fill us in. Where are you at with BDD? Now, let's start with what is it. Let's define it for the for the novice. Okay, great. Yeah. So BDD is behavior driven development or design, and it's really what I would consider the next evolution of TDD. So uh, test driven development. Test driven development. Yeah, I got watch out for the TLAs or three letter acronyms. <laughs> uh, one of the problems that people had, and I've been giving talks on on TDD for at least five years now. One of the problems I always run into when I give these talks is I can give an hour talk or a whole day session, and the developers are completely sold on it. Right? They like I totally understand why mm. this is such a good thing, and then they get back to work on Monday, 
and they sit at the keyboard and they go, how do I write that first test? Mm. What do I call the test? What do I test? Right. And the blank slate syndrome, the blank slate yeah. syndrome. And so <clears throat> there are several people, Dan North among them, uh, Scott Bellwer. I'm probably forgetting some other names and I apologize by, by omission. But there are some people who got together, very smart people who said, there's got to be a better way, right? People are focusing too much on the test aspect yeah. of TDD and not the actual design. Yeah. And, and so they came up with behavior-driven development. And there's a couple different camps. One is a user story camp where you say, you know, as an X, I want to Y for the benefit of Z. Right. So X is a role, right? Y is a feature and Z is a benefit for... As a user, I want to log in so I can access, have access the, site. the system. Yeah. Right. And it's amazing when you go to a BA or, or, you know, somebody writing the requirements, product owner, if you're using Scrum terminology and say, for every requirement, we want there to be a benefit. Uh, you'll probably have about 25% of the requirements go away, right? Because people, if you can't have a specified benefit, take it away. The, the problem that I have with user stories, and, and I liken it to my mastery of, of the French language, uh, which I have to chuckle because I don't have mastery of the French language. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. Yeah, or lack thereof. <laughs> but I took French, you know, four years in high school, four years in college, and I really thought I understood it. And I had an uncle that retired to southern France, and my wife and I went to France, and I said, don't worry, honey, we'll be great, right? I took yeah. eight years of French, and we got off the plane, and the only words I could come up with is my pencil is yellow, my pencil is long. jeez. <laughs> oh, yes. I have a pencil, my pencil is yellow. Have you seen my yellow pencil? Yes. And, and everybody's looking at you like, he has jaundice. What is yeah. this? <laughs> so it's – and I, I – you know, we laugh about that, but when you introduce user stories to traditional BAs or, or, you know, people writing requirements, for them, it's a lot like me in French. They can read it. They understand it because I could understand the people speaking French, but I couldn't come up with the vocabulary. Yeah. And so people struggle with writing user stories. It's a, it's a composition issue. It's yes. A, how do I pull this together to speak it? Right. And, you know, it's, there are a lot of people having great success with user stories. I'm not saying that's not a good way to go. If you've got an organization that can do it, it's great. And it feels like an easy way to start because it's something that's very tangible. There's lots of people involved. Like if, in terms of engaging a group of folks to build a new app, I think it's incredibly compelling that you get to take everyone's story. Well, and the, the format is the, is the thing that makes it work. You know, the, the protocol, if you will, as a role. I want to action so I can result. I mean, that's just a, an easy way to think of what are my roles, what are my actions, and what are my results. Put it all together. Easy, easy place to start. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, for people that are having success with that, keep at it, right? You know, I'm not going to try and steer you in a different direction, but there is another alternative out there. Okay. And Scott Bellwer put a paper together for Code Magazine. I don't remember what the year is. And he actually called it BDD as well, or behavior-driven development and, and later it's kind of taken on its own name of context specification and i'm probably misquoting who came up with that name but the concept is more spoken english like as opposed to and, and, and as an x i want to y for benefit of z is obviously very you know very english oriented and, and easy yeah. to say but context specification is when editing a uh, form or when logging into a system, it should grant me access to my files. Okay. So it's more about what the software should do 
perhaps when the user wants to do something. Yeah, and it's it's taking the exact same thing as a user story, but really compressing it into a simpler sentence or a simpler construct. So when you do something, it should respond this way. Right, because that's sort of missing in the other, isn't it, the, the user story? It's sort of what the computer does is sort of missing. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that way. Absolutely. It's context specification is much more like, well, here's something that I can specifically test. Yeah. And specifically code. You know, it's great to say as a user, I want to log into the system so I can have access to my shopping cart, but what does that mean? Well, you know, it seems that both need to go together. As a user, I want to log I want to log in so I can access the system. When I log in, I want the the computer to do something. Yeah, that's a great way of doing it. Well, if you if you think of maybe user stories as a starting point, right? Of where you know, and and there's a product out there called Team Pulse where you can collaborate and build user stories mm-hmm. together, right? As a group, and and work through that. And then when you're actually ready to code, it's much easier to turn a context specification into raw code and tests that you can just flush out the tests and you've got your framework for your application already built. Are, are, are these being written? Um, is this a good way to write a spec for a business person to write a spec for a piece of software? I think it is because it's easier for them to write the, the, the two line sentence than it is a user story. Okay. Well, it also seems to me that user stories can be very vague. I mean, you can say, the, you know, I want this software to work so that I can get my job done. You know, I've, you know, using hyperbole there, but the point is when you do it from the user's perspective like that, you can tend to get too broad where I think when you're looking from a context perspective, you're talking about a particular action reaction pair. It naturally distills itself down to something simpler. Right. And, and we've, we've developed a term for those vague ones. We call them epics now. (laughs) (laughs) So you'll have an epic that is many stories. Yes. And within those stories, um, you're going to have some specifications. And, and with user stories, you typically use a given when then. If there's too many epics, do you call it a saga? <laughs> um, no, you usually call that a failed project. <laughs> a fairy tale, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. so, but either one you use, you, you really, you're, you're turning the development paradigm over. Mm-hmm. You're giving the developers what to test. Right. How to write that first test. One of the things people always struggle with in TDD, t- you know, traditional TDD is, well, do I need to test properties? Right. Do I need to test that, you know, two plus two really equals four? You know, or wh- wh- how does this behavior come in? Like, what does a software do? Well, user stories and context specification both. And if you can use them together, it's even better. They're giving the developers what to test. It's not some vague requirement, you know. A mm-hmm. uh, picture of a login screen and, you know, some circles and arrows and the paragraph on the back of each one uh, that we now have to sort of turn into. Yeah, I got the Alice's Restaurant reference in there. Who uses evidence against you. Yes, I get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, have I, you I, rehabilitated yourself? See, I wasn't going to go there, but now we've completely derailed Phil. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, I can't help right. myself. It's and, one of my favorite things in the world is Alice's Restaurant. If you're going to pull out references, we're going to play along. No, no, that's it's, fine. That's the Monty Python problem, though, that you just, once you start, you can't stop. <laughs> Well, and, and I made a reference uh, to Alice's Restaurant today, and they all moved away from me on the Group W bench because nobody, <laughs> nobody got it. <laughs> oh, man. you got to be a real hippie, I guess. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. 
you also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft Client for Facebook Beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. FaceDeck has a nice, elegant, black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag-and-drop operation from your file system to your FaceDeck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, FaceDeck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And of course, it's free. Try it at facedeck.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, now that you've completely lost your train of thought, I, it, let me ask you a question. One of, the, of course, what happens in TDD is that you start with, um, you know, you want the computer to do something, so you start with an action. And after you refactored four or five, six, seven, nine, ten times, you end up with lots of little, um, lots of little routines or functions or subs that, that, you know, together make that happen. So maybe the whole problem is, you know, when you do a demo like that, you're getting it down into those details and, what BDD is trying to do is bring people back to the big picture. So, cause you're naturally going to drill in and start refactoring. You're going to end up with these, you know, subs and functions, these methods with really long names that do very specific things. That's not a good place to start. No, and it's not. And, and so people that are doing BDD talk about either outside in or inside out development. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I'm not sold on one or the other. I think everything is case by case. So the outside in is you really start with something kind of broad, you know, and you don't have all the details flushed out. You don't necessarily have single responsibility or the other solid principles in your code when you start. Um, but then, you know, as you get the outside working, you start working down onto the inside and you're getting those finer details. And as you're doing the refactoring, it's the same thing with TDD. You're going to end up with a whole lot of little units of work especially if you're following solid and single responsibility and dry. Uh, don't repeat yourself. Um, don't repeat yourself. <laughs> then, then you're still going to end up with, you know, and at the end of the day, shipping is a feature, yeah. right? We want to get out the door. Get so out the so we want to spend too much time with making the code perfect. But we also want to make sure that we're spending enough time so that the code that we are writing is defect-free. And what I mean by defect-free is it matches the stated requirements, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you're always going to have what I call change requests, which is what a customer would call a bug. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's a definition point. But if, if they say, I want this to do that, and I, I can prove that my code does what they asked me to make it do, mm-hmm. because I have tests or specifications around it, I've done my job. doesn't mean that we're done. No. Right. Because it's always, you know, do what I think, not what I told you to do. Right. Unless sometimes they really want you to do what they tell you to do and not what they think. And and then you have to interpret it. Well, hopefully they're thinking to begin with. That's usually where the problem starts. Well, now we got to be nice to users. There you go. Not the users. Our job's kind of boring. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have jobs if we didn't uh, have yeah. users. Yeah. I mean, the typical problem that I'm expressing here is that you, they, I think people who design things, you know, because they have an idea of what they want, usually have a broad idea and don't, and have a problem getting into 
particular details of it. So they really have to go through an iteration first before they realize, ah, that's not what I want. This is what I want. And I have so many stories of being that guy who coded it, you know, the way they asked the first time, only to find out that that was simply an exercise for them to get something to to figure out what they really want you to do. Well, and that brings up another problem with traditional TDD is how do we complete that feedback loop to the customer? So we've gotten requirements. We're now trying to code them and we're using, you know, NUnit or MS test or MBUnit or whatever framework you're using. And you've got all these classes that have, you know, test fixtures that have individual tests in them. And now we have to show the user what we're doing. Well, what we did in the past, and it was a big pile of work, was we use NDOC. Right, or Sandcastle now, and we'd mm-hmm. make MSDN style documentation of the APIs, and we'd have to rip out the stuff that we didn't want, and we'd try and show them how to use, you know, how to look at a CHM file or, or things like that and say, well, this is what we're testing, and we had to make sure we'd name the test correctly, and, and it was a lot of work, uh, mostly a manual process. You could probably PowerShell, you could probably script it out now. Mm-hmm. But the advantage that we have with the BDD frameworks, and the one I use is MSpec, it's a, it's a port of RSpec that Aaron Jensen did. And it's, it's, you know, machine specifications is what MSpec stands for. And it has built into it the ability to take all of your specifications from a command line call so it can be part of your build process and build either HTML documentation or straight XML that you can then use to do whatever you want with. So that every time you do a build, you run all your specifications, you create this output, you put it up on the wiki, and your user comes and looks at your specifications, which, again, are sentences, mm-hmm. right? And they can read on the wiki exactly what you're doing. And so every time you do a build, they say, well, how are you coming on the project? Well, why don't you look at the team wiki? You can right. see what specifications we have, which ones are not implemented, which ones are implemented, and you can make sure we're still on track. Right. We're working on the things that matter to you and we're, and the what we've built is actually what you wanted or what you think you wanted anyway. Yeah. And so, it, well, it gives them the opportunity to say, oh, ah, that's not really what I meant. Yeah. Right. And, and before you even write any code. So I do this thing called right. behavior driven requirements mm. where I'm going to use MSpec and I'm going to write out specifications, not implement any of them. Right. This is like writing a bunch of empty tests and I'll take their initial requirements and I'll drill down. So somebody says, Users should log into the system. Well, I know as a developer that there's more to that, right? I have to have some sort of sort of, you know, some way to validate that user, some way to store that user information, right? Yeah. So I'm going to flush out those specs, not write any code, but flush out the specs. Yeah, we're going to use Active Directory or IMAP or just the email and password, like those kinds of decisions that when the guy actually gets to building this thing, he has to know. Right. And so I've got a framework in place that the customer has now agreed to because they're looking at it. So this is my living requirements document. Mm. Right. And then when everybody says, yeah, that's what I want. I've already got all the C sharp or VB.net code in place. Yeah. So I can hand it off to the team and all they have to do is make these specs pass. Right. So is this, uh, is, is this methodology something that you're using every day in all of your projects? Does it always fit? I have yet to find it not fit. I, I, we were talking at lunch today. I'm at the point now where I feel dirty if I write code without writing a test. <laughs> and, and like I need to go take a shower. Um, now that's not to say, that's not to say I haven't written code fairly recently that didn't have a test around it's it. Not to say I, you haven't felt dirty recently, yeah. right? But that's I did, right. I did take a shower very quick and yeah. I did, you know, slap a test around it as soon as I can. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I've been burned so many times by not doing 
you know, the TDD or the, the behavior driven design that I won't write code now without having specifications around it because it's, it's like, you know, when I was in college, I had a professor who said one paper, your entire quarter grade is going to be based on this. Describe how to tie your shoe. Nice. And very simple. If he reads your paper while tying his shoe, following it verbatim, and your shoe, his shoe is tied, you passed. Otherwise, you failed. Everybody failed. Yeah, that's a quite a difficult thing to describe, isn't it? But it's the same as describing a software application, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it, we make assumptions when we document stuff that are in our head that we don't necessarily write down. Right. So it's a matter of expressing every little detail. And you can't do that, right? So we're going to make assumptions as developers. And if we're using a tool like MSpec, and, and there are other, you know, uh, StoryQ and, and several other tools out there that you can use, SpecFlow, among others, then you can fill in those details without spending a bunch of time in code and let the person who wrote the, the sketchy part that they thought was very detailed and look at it and say, yeah, that's what I meant. Or no, that's not what I meant. Right? And so it just saves you a whole bunch of time and, and frustration. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the tools that you mentioned, MSpec, tell us about that for those who don't know what it is and where to get it. So so MSpec is, uh, well, you bing it and just type in MSpec. <laughs> um, go, it, go to justfuckinggoogleit.com. <laughs> I actually used that on somebody recently. Yeah, let me Google it for you. No, it's... Um, <laughs> There, there's a there's a GitHub site. And I don't remember the exact site, but but honestly, if you just Bing or Google MSpec, um, the 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 source code is hosted on uh, GitHub, and the um, executables that you can use to install or actually extract are hosted on CodeBetter. And is this a what what kind of thing is this a command line tool? Is it a Visual Studio plugin? What what is? Uh, it? So it's a test framework. So in your C sharp or .NET pro, whatever your .NET project language of choice is, mm-hmm. uh, then you just make a reference to machine.specifications.dll and you can start using it using the framework. Oh, okay. And and so this just ships as part of your app as well, or is it just part of the build process? Well, ships as part of the app. So I treat my tests as if it's production code, right? But I don't ship my tests. Okay. Unless it's open source where you want to ship the tests and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to go on a production server. Right. So it's not, it doesn't become part of your line of business code is like how I'd like to distinguish it, but it's part of your test code. So, and I'm just curious as to how it works. Um, it, it generates specification code, skeleton code. Well, so the, the, the core of the way it works is there's, there's some delegates that are written for you. So your class name becomes your context, and then you have a, an established delegate, which is your range. So, so most people accept the triple A syntax for testing, a range, act, then assert. So there's an established delegate that, that is a range. So you have a nice, neat little lambda expression where you can do all of your setup for your test. You have a because delegate, which is your action. So this is where you're going to log in the user, right? Call security.login or whatever. And then you have a whole bunch of its, IT, which is another delegate. And this is where it should grant access to the system. It should reload the shopping cart. And these are all delegates. And what the MSpec runner or whatever your test runner is, so for example, Just Code has MSpec support built in. Uh, ReSharper supports it as well through the, the MSpec community. Um, I don't know about Code Rush. Uh, I, I, again, I just don't know. Um, but the test runner then, when it runs it, 
MSpec says, oh, the MSpec runner says, oh, well, here are these delegates. These are machine specification tests. We're going to run them as if they are unit tests. Mm-hmm. And, oh, cool. So then you get pass fail on each of the individual specifications, the it's. Oh, that's very cool. Well, and then, you know, you get back, you made the statement about having this living specification and it's because it's bound to the tests. So each of those specs ties back to actual code. Right. Yeah. And so then if you change your tests or your specifications, as we call them now, mm-hmm. then when you regenerate the documentation, your requirements document, which you're keeping accurate uh, because it is code, then shows actually what you're doing. Right. And that's very interesting, the difference between what you wrote and what you actually implemented. Right. They're not usually the same. There's issues. Right? Well, they're not. People make it, decisions at the low level when they're writing the code that ultimately affect that specification. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Do you have any tips for people uh, for dealing with users in getting those cases and contexts together? What I usually do is try and find whatever medium they are most comfortable with explaining it to me. Um, I, I, I've spent a lot of time since I was over 20 years as a consultant before I joined Telerik. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time writing requirements for people, uh, because not that I wanted to, and it certainly wasn't delivering code, which is what I was hired to do, but it was the only way we could get it done. Yeah. I've also worked with people who are very good at writing requirements. Yeah. So you need to find out, you know, it's like Myers-Briggs, right? Everybody has a personality and you got to figure out their personality. Sometimes you just get a bunch of people in a room, let them talk to you, Mm -hmm. right? And as they talk together, they start flushing out ideas. Sometimes you get everybody in a room and they let them talk and they're at each other's throats. Yeah. Right. So find either user stories or the context specification style. Find one of those two that works for them. Maybe it's both as we discussed earlier in, in, in this conversation, and hold their hand for the first few. Write it for them, right? Let them talk. You do the typing. And when they actually see how their words come out as, you know, their, their spoken words come out as written words, they start to get it. And then they just kind of get with the stream of consciousness and they get going. Yeah, it does seem like the starting point is a tough one. Once you're rolling, then you dive into content and people get move pretty quickly. I'm still worrying over this mixture of, of, of context and user story, like making sure all of them get tests and, you know, which one gets more love. Yeah. So I, in the past two years of my consulting career, I completely abandoned user stories. Just stuck with the context. And just stuck with context specification because that's what worked for me. Right. Right. And it was easier for me to teach that to BAs and product owners uh, BA's business analysts and, and product owners and those people writing the requirements mm-hmm. because I felt more comfortable with it myself. It sounds like you could easily convert user stories into context specs. I think you can. I, I never have gone that road. It, I, and I, I give talks all over the place and people come up and say, we have no problem with user stories. I'm like, great, high fives. You know, If, if user stories are working for you, mm-hmm. that's great. And there are some tools that are different than MSpec. So MSpec is a context specification tool. Right. 
There are other tools. Uh, I believe StoryQ does this where you take your user story and it creates code from your user story. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are tools that match user stories. I'm just more comfortable with MSpec. It was more of a win for me and in, in the way I work. Um, but I think all of them are valid. Well, and it does feel like the context spec is more test centric. You've, you've got a better description of what the test should be where user stories can easily, some user stories can work that way, but it easily cannot work that way where it's very hard to know what to do. Well, yeah. And it seems like with user stories, there's a lot of filling in the, the blanks, you know, in terms, there's a lot of leeway for how the software is going to do something. Right. And that's you know, one of the issues I had with it is uh, the granularity. Right. Right. So if the granularity is not where I need it to be from a context specification, I can write additional specifications in the same context mm. and get that granularity without altering their story. The you know, story in quotes, you of course can't see because this is a radio show, but I'm making a little quote marks <laughs> with my fingers. Air quotes. Uh, whereas a user story, if it's too grand, you call it an epic. You start making additional user stories right. that are smaller. And you might lose the user's voice because the original epic was written by the user. And you as a developer or architect or, or lead are writing the user stories. And now you start translating playing the telephone game. Yeah, you're, decompose, you're trying to decompose the epic into smaller stories that are testable. And, and they're all subject to interpretation. Yeah, so you have lots of meetings where the question's always, so what exactly did you mean by that? Right. <laughs> or, or here's what we wrote. And he said, well, that's, where'd that come from? Yeah, we didn't say that. Yeah. Well, and domain experts fall into the same booby trap. There's a whole bunch of assumptions that they don't remember to write down. Right. And, and that decomposition sort of reveals that, which is not a bad thing. But, you know, the bigger issue here is you can't comfortably say every use story has a set of tests. It doesn't always work that way. And it feels to me like context specifications are more prone to every context spec has a test. And, well, and, and the context spec is the test. Yeah. Right. So it, it is a one-to-one. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and we all are, uh, we, we all have this problem where when we try to explain something, we make assumptions that, and it's just human nature. And if you don't believe me, Try to, you know, get your friend or your girlfriend or your wife or your husband or whoever and try to teach them how to do something you know how to do really well on the computer. Anything. Over the phone. No, no. Even sitting right next to you and see what happens. And typically what happens is you start out being a little detailed, then you get into it and you go really fast and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So, yeah, it's just human nature to do that. Perfect example of that is my wife called me. So, of course, I'm, you know, I'm from Cincinnati and they got like seven or eight inches of snow yesterday. And my mm-hmm. wife calls me and goes, how do you start the snowblower? I said, well, it's easy. You turn it on and you set the choke and, and pull you, the cord. you pull the cord. She goes, what's a choke? There you go. And I'm Where like, and I can't picture it in my mind because no. it's just it's like a nature for turn. me to reach and turn. Yeah. And she's like, okay, well, there's two knobs. I'm like, oh, no. It's the exact same thing, right? It's all these assumptions that we have what going was into the knob? something. Is it the throttle? Is it no, the it's the engine speed. Yeah, right. It's well, yeah, throttle. throttle. Yeah, yeah, it was a throttle. It's a throttle and a choke. Yeah, and I, again, well, it's just like, I don't know your phone number. I just know where the fingers go on the pad. Yeah. yeah I've been there where I actually <laughs> have to, I, I, I got to go check that guy's phone number. I go to a pad and watch where my fingers go and then write it down. Otherwise, I wouldn't know it at all. Yeah, so that that's exactly, and that happened to me. I was trying to show... Uh, my girlfriend had to had to do some editing. We were actually editing Mondays of all things, and uh, showing her how nonlinear audio editing works. And I fell into that same trap. And man, it's frustrating as hell for her, yeah. not for me. Well, you, you, 
just got to stop ourselves, right? I think this is a cl- classic battle in, in designing an application, working through that, trying to get the domain guys to go to sufficient detail and their own clarity. We've all got the same problem. There's just different flavors of it. And, and, you know, the other thing is that you can feel really intimidated by not understanding their domain and don't, don't. I mean, you really have to stand up and say, okay, guys, I am clueless here. You need to fill me in on some details uh, so that I can do my job. Yeah. Don't ever feel like you should know what the details of the domain are. Well, and it, really one thing that I think is very interesting from my personal career was I was working as architect and scrum master for a, a fairly large project. We had like 18 devs on it and we got actually fairly good requirements. The guy writing the requirements came from a technical background and now was on the business side. Domain expert. He was a domain expert. But still, what people were coming up to me, developers on my team were coming up to me and says, what does this mean? And so I had an Excel spreadsheet of many requirements. So I was breaking down, and they weren't user story format. They were, they were kind of user story format. And I was breaking them down into little, and so we'll call them epics, into little things. And so I had this Excel spreadsheet completely separate from the requirements document right. that I was then given to the devs after running by the BA and saying, are these accurate? And he'd say yes or no. And then so, and then I realized when I saw MSpec, I'm like, well, crap, that's what I was doing. Yeah. Right? But I didn't have a tool for it. So now instead of keeping this document over here and this other document over here that might get put in your, you know, your SharePoint, you know, never see it again place or whatever, it's actually code. Yeah. I don't think we've defined BA. You've used the term a couple of times. A business analyst. Business analyst. Yeah. Product owner would be the Scrum equivalent, the, mm-hmm. the person who is, um, you know, the domain expert the domain for, expert, the, for right. the business. Well, Phil, is there anything that you want to else that you want to mention before we sign off? No, I think um, if if at first you don't succeed, it's something you have to try, try again. I've been doing uh, TDD for over nine years now, I've doing BDD for, for several years, and I'm very comfortable with it now. And I don't mm. think I can write code regularly without doing TDD or BDD. But I know a lot of people who, and even myself, struggled to get here. Is it worth doing starter projects just to exercise the muscles? Uh, I, I totally believe in code katas, mm-hmm. right? So I had, a, I had a long history of martial arts as a kid, and we did katas. You know, the same things again and again and again until it became muscle memory. Mm-hmm. You should do the same thing. Write a test, you know, find something. Go to projecteuler.com, yeah, do the for Euler's. example, and do them, right? Write, it, write your spec or write your test. Solve it, delete everything. Start Tell us over. how you spell Euler. E-U-L-E-R? I think I- it's actually Euler, but I think we got called out on that. We did get called. It's, it's pronounced Euler, isn't it? Okay, bing it. Yeah. <laughs> E-U-L-E-R. I, I think it is. Yes. E-U-L-E-R. Yeah, which to me seems like Euler, but apparently is Euler. It's okay. European. But well, uh, the main uh, thing is that they're, they're classic programming exercises that, that allow you to try these different... I mean, you said this was a fair, more, far more normal thing in the earlier days of programming when we were yeah. constantly changing platforms. And what's the first thing you did? You built your CRUD app. Right. All right, let's get the basic CRUD things working. What does that look like in this app? Right, right absolutely. Yep. And, and and I would stay away from Hello World. Yeah. Because I can write Hello World in probably any programming language. It yeah. doesn't mean I'm going to be a productive developer yeah. in that programming I think language. you have to pick. And, and the nice thing about the Oilers is that they're not yours. They're, some of them are awkward intentionally. 
So, you, you know, it certainly shows up elements of the language, but also elements of the practice. Right. And, and the other thing, the other one thing I would mention is you really can't be effective at doing TDD or BDD or even solid if you don't understand dependency injection. Right. And if you're injecting your dependencies into your code, you're going to need to have a mocking framework to use. Right. So you have to get comfortable with mocks. All kind of works together. We did a, a .NET Rocks with James Kovacs on that whole series of, of uh, methodologies. I don't know what you would call them. Uh, you wouldn't call them methodologies. I guess you would call these things uh, uh, the, the practices. Practices, or, yeah. yeah. It's really tools, right? I mean, it's all tools in your tool belt. So whether it's MSpec right. or StoryQ or NUnit or MSpecs, it, it's, you know, they're all tools. And, and definitely there's patterns around the testing. Yeah. Well, thanks, Phil. Well, thank you guys for having me. It's been fun. It's definitely been fun. And we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a